All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to make sure you also know that this Saturday is um, one of our three big community uh, outreach events, which is the Easter Bash. And um, uh, so we would, this is one of the things I want to change about the culture of Tyler as a whole, and I want our church to take point in this, is being a culture that invites people, that we are, we're inviting people. And I think it's a habit, I think it was something pretty common, especially maybe in the South, um, in the past, and I think, I don't know if COVID killed it or, or what, but something has affected that, and we don't think to invite people to things as quickly as we used to, and I want our church to be a place that invites people to things, and this is the kind of stuff that would be a great one, to invite people to the Easter Bash, especially if they've got little kids. There's going to be like 70 million eggs. Um, I have no, I don't, I don't know what the number is. What I know is that Oriental Trading Company made the mistake of giving Rebecca Lizenby a 50% off coupon. <laughs> And I think that they may go out of business um, because of that. Um, and so it's, it's, I'm just telling you, this is going to be uh, an awesome experience. So if you've got family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, especially that have kids, um, food trucks, um, and it'll be from 11 to 2, it's just a big, fun atmosphere. We have like a recreation of the tomb and, you know, Roman soldiers and that kind of stuff, like just to experience a little bit. Of, anyway, it's just, it's just going to be, I think, a great time. So I'd love to encourage you to come, serve if you're if you've not planned on it already, and then invite, invite, invite. We want people to we want to invite people to your homes, out to eat, to church, um, and to things like this. So that's what they're for. And so we want to we're going to be focusing attention there on that. Um, also, a couple of quick updates um, for you know, and and we'll probably for the next couple of weeks we're going to focus on. Christ and Him crucified and risen. And so over the next couple of weeks, we, we will not be planning on doing any updates. You can check online if you want to for that. Um, and then after Easter, we'll hit it hard again. Um, but, uh, but real quickly, so that you will know, um, we have updates this morning as far as individual pledges. Um, that's a significant increase over last week, which is awesome. Thank you. Um, and and th- what turned out, so you know, my last week, there was not a, um, uh, you know, when I, I said, hey, I'd love to hear, I think most of you probably know me well enough, although people are traumatized in church um, sometimes. And so um, if, if, if you heard me saying some version of like, you'll pledge or I'll know why, that, that was not meant to be the tone. The, the exact was more like, listen, I would love to hear. I, I, I think I'm a pretty good poker player, I'm a pretty good therapist, but I'm still not psychic. And so uh, it would be great to know if there's something that you're like, hey, I've got this question or whatever. And thankfully, several of you did this week reach out and say, hey, I, d- I don't know about this or I don't know about that. And, and could you offer some insight or some input on this? That was super helpful. Um, I don't know if we have the other numbers. I didn't even I didn't show them the first. So coming up on. Yeah, that's I mean, again, like miraculous. So um, we're so thankful for all of that um, for you guys, for what God's doing with us. But so there were a couple of patterns. So I'll share with you. Um, quick up. So the pledge, here's a couple of things for you to know. One of the questions was that there is a pledge to pray option without a financial component. And that's not, I, I know people, and I know we, we, you know, we're all like supposed to say that that's not second best or whatever. Listen, that's not second best. We're supposed to say that because it's true. That's not like, oh, the B team's just praying, the A team's giving. Like, nope, that's not how this works at all. Um, we actually would say the opposite. This is beyond us. This is more than we can raise. Um, uh, everyone would tell you that. So, so prayer is going to be, God is going to be the one who provides if, if this is provided, and it's up to Him to do so, and we trust in that. So um, this, that's, that's absolutely the case. And if you would like to, pl- there's several ways to do that. You can go online 
in fact, if you have any questions, it's one of the other patterns was people saying, I don't, I don't, where do I look to see the details? I missed the Sundays that were the emphasis Sundays or, or whatever. There's a website, you go to our website, southspring.org, big blue banner, you click on it, it's got all kinds of information, videos about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and we'll be updating across the next three years, which is typically, that will probably be also the building project as well over years. And so um, it's just a lot of fun to get involved with it. You also, if you, a handful of people said, I don't know, um, in addition to, I can't give right now, um, or I'd like to give, but, but there's a big financial thing going on in my life right now I need to wait on, you can pledge to pray um, because that's all, you, all you've got, which is the most powerful thing that you can do that is more powerful than just giving. Um, or you can say, uh, man, I, I want to pledge to pray now while we're waiting on this decision. Go for it. Do that. Um, if you would say, um, I'm, but I'm uncomfortable with online stuff, maybe. That's okay. We've got these laying around all over the place. Um, several people sent me an email and said, which is a little ironic, uh, I sent an email saying, I'm not sure I'm comfortable online with this stuff, but it is a, um, you can, you can actually do these cards, you can fill it out, hand it off to any staff member, or you can drop it in a slot that's back there in the hallway that you've never noticed that's a sneaky little slot, you can send them to the business office that way. Um, all those options are there, and I just want to make sure you know about those, because those are the patterns. Several people asked about that, and I don't want you to not have the information you need. Okay, so jumping into, uh, back into 1 Samuel, here's something that's kind of fun. So I don't know about you guys and, and what you grew up reading and stuff, um, but my daughter Emma is, is really into reading right now, and, and typically what she reads is Nancy Drew. Anybody? Okay, so yes. So Nancy, Nancy Drew, this, was, this is... Um, she's devouring these like I devour donuts. She's going through them so fast and, and, uh, and loving them. And here's what's funny. So we're walking out in the woods the other day. Um, I'm walking with a couple with her, she and her friends in there. And I asked them what they're doing. And they said, we are sleuthing. <laughs> and there's only a few places to learn that word. And Nancy Drew's one of them. And so she, they, they were out sleuthing. Um, and so we're going to be doing some sleuthing today um, as we go through this passage. And I'll tell you, if you've read ahead... If you've read 1 Samuel chapter 9, um, I hope I'm not the only one who got to the end of 1 Samuel chapter 9 and said, how do I find anything to apply to my life from this? Anything. This is a story about a guy looking for his dad's donkeys. That's it. Incidentally, I'll just tell you, if you, there's someone giggling around you, it's because they've got the King James Version. I'll leave it at that. So there was a, what is the application here for me? So I'm going to read this, and then we will pick up here um, as, we, as we get, I'm, I'm going to read through the section we're going to look at today, and then we'll start unpacking it. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphai, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalasha. And they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, and they, did not find them, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, 
Let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, the servant, said, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to the servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. They went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up, to the, hill, went up the hill to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord spoke to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? All right, we're going to try to get through all of that today. And, and here's what's interesting. I want you to notice the temptation that we sometimes have when we read accounts like this in the Bible, and, and I certainly had this as a child, as I told you, is that I, when you read those, sometimes they sound a little like um, a fairy tale or a mother goose story. And, and Carter, that's the, the rhythmic nature of it. And, and even our modern day versions of it, like, like the movie Elf, right? Where he, he went to Shalim and they weren't there and he went through the swirly, whirly gumdrops and it's, a, it's like it has that feel to it sometimes and, and that causes us sometimes to disconnect from it like it's a, well, you know, there's, there's Narnia and there's Wonderland and there's Israel and there's Mother Gooseland and we kind, of, we kind of do that if we're not careful. Keep in mind, that's, that's, that's not the direction that that happened. This was written in a way to be rhythmic, to be easy to memorize. On top of that, it's been translated into English, which is not the language they were speaking and not the language it was written in originally. And so that's why some of the, some of the language feels weird to us when we listen to it or when they speak to one another. It sounds like, uh, here's a, this is a throwback for many of you, uh, way back. It sounds like Tonto talking to the Lone Ranger. Come, let us go, right? It's like that, that got that feel to it. So you're going to need, as we focus in on this passage... I want us to remember that this, some of that stuff was done there so that we would be able to read it easily and even memorize it, um, that it, that's done on purpose. 
And of course, some of this is you're getting um, summaries of conversations, you're probably getting um, uh, compilations pulled together, that kind of stuff. But here's what's wild. I've said many times, one of the reasons I trust Scripture so much is because of my psychology training. Is that I read these people and I read what they do and I read how they talk, maybe not with the rhythmic Hebrew style, but the way they communicate and the insecurities they have and the conversations they have feels real. It feels very real to me. And the way this story is told actually does feel very real. I'm going to show you several. But we're going to run into several places in this passage that should create record scratches for us in our brain. That we should immediately go, what? wait, what? Wait, whoa, whoa, stop, go back. So let's pick up. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacharath, the son of Aphi, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So as a good Jewish audience, the first place that we should have our record scratch is this. We know that the last chapter, the last little section ended with, we're now going to go look for a king. Samuel's going to go look for a king. He's going to go look for a king for Israel. God has, the people have demanded it, God has allowed it, and now we're going to go look for a king. And the very first thing taught tells us about a man of Benjamin, and that should be a record scratch for us. Because remember, Judah is the line of kings, not Benjamin. And so this should already have us confused, like, wait, what? What, why are we, why are we talk, hearing about a Benjaminite? This should start with somebody from the land of, from Judah. That would make more sense. It makes sense that your first response to reading 1 Samuel chapter 9, and I know this sounds heretical for us, should be, so? And why, do, why do I care about this guy and his lost donkeys? Right? Like, what's, what's going on? All right, so Nancy Drew, we're going to have to put on our sleuthing hats get out our little magnifying glass and do some sleuthing. First, it should sound a little bit familiar. 1 Samuel 1, 1, way back, nine chapters ago, started like this. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's kind of the same way this chapter begins. It's not a common beginning in Hebrew. This is not the way they tell stories typically. But there, is a, there are a couple of other ones. Here's another one. Judges chapter 13, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and he had no children. So again, we get that same type of introduction. There once was a man. And it tells us a little bit about him. And that's, this is significant. So here's, here's why they, the commentators think this matters. This is one of the places we get it, is with Samuel, right? And with Samuel we go, oh, there's two kind of types of rulers of Israel. There are the Samuels, and then there are the other one that was there, the Samsons. There are the Samuels, and there are the Samsons. There are the righteous, godly people who God uses to lead His people. Then there are the self-absorbed, narcissistic tyrants who God uses to rescue his people. So, but they're not the same. They're very different in their presentation. And Jewish commentators will say, there's a reason that, that, that Saul is introduced this way, and it's supposed to make us go, okay, is this a Samuel? Or is this a Samson? Which are we about to be introduced to? 
And that's a, some people even say the fact that it starts with a story of a donkey is meant to already give us a hint like, this may be a Samson. Remember, a donkey has a significant roles for Samson. But, so I think we're supposed to say, is this like Samson? Or is this guy going to be like Samuel? Because the two are not much alike. Aside from that, this section has all the Hebrew names. There are very appropriate Hebrew names. They're connected to God or to places or to other good things. Um, The people were looking to God. They were proud of the land and they were pleased with the good things that God had given them. Maybe most significantly, Abel, which is one of the ancestors of Saul, is from the root word Abba, father, and El, God. That literally he is named uh, the, the, probably the son of or the God is my father is literally the meaning there. But then we get to Saul. Saul's name means requested. It means asked for. Now this should make our little Spock eyebrows go up, right? Not the non-Nancy Drew people like, now wait a minute. The next chapter, the people of Israel requested a king And then we randomly are introduced to a guy who's looking for his dad's donkeys, and his name happens to be requested. That should make us think. So he's described as very handsome, equal to or better looking than every other man in Israel, and tall. So I needed a five foot three person. So Landry, let me get you to come on up. So this is Landry Lace. She's one of my star government pupils, government class. Come on up. So um, I tested before to see what the right height was, and Landry is the same height as my shoulder. This is how much taller Saul was than all the other people in Israel. Think of what a freak he looked like, right? I mean, how when he walked around, how much different he seemed than everybody else. Now, some of you are already jumping ahead to like, but what about Goliath? Don't jump that far ahead yet. Hold back. See this? This would be very different. Okay, thank you. You did a great job. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. Okay. So, we get it when you picture Saul, and by the way, I don't need any help for the other part, that he was more handsome than anybody else in the land. Like, that's a... They laughed in the first service, too, and I don't understand why. Sorry. Okay, so, now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost, so Kish said to his son, to Saul his son, take one of the young men, the servant, with you, and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalisha, and they could not find them, and they passed through the land of Shalim, and they could, were not there, and they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. This is perhaps the least impressive story, start to a story ever. Um, it's, it's what on earth are we talking about some guys lost donkeys? The dad says, take a servant and go look for my donkeys. Now, I did recently teach a series on biblical geography, and in that process of talking about travel, we learned that donkeys were expensive, and in the Old Testament are usually used as a sign of wealth. Um, so it is a big deal that, that his donkeys are missing, and they're going to go find them. <laughs> they begin a search that ends up taking 20 to 30 miles across the countryside. I think we have um, a picture. Now, I will also tell you, a lot of the map like this from this era, 3,000 years ago, is guesswork. And let me explain why. So like these places, when it says uh, Shalisha or Shalim, Shalisha just means the land of three. That's probably a local type of, of setting that we have no idea now where this was. 
it probably references three valleys that kind of came together into one valley, which would be an appropriate place to look for donkeys who are missing, is they're going to find low land, they're going to slowly move downward because upward's hard, and they're slowly going to find a place. In fact, shalim means the palm of the hand. And so it probably represents like a bowl in the, in the earth somewhere <coughs> that, where donkeys might gather if you were looking for them. So a few things are, are supposed to happen here, <clears throat> but I think it's really interesting this is like if I said, hey, um, hey, I was, I was looking for my friend, he was gone, and I stopped at the Gresham Fourway, and he wasn't there, so I went out to the Blue Noonday store and didn't find him there, and, and most of us would go like, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's smart, that's a good place to look for somebody, right? Those are, those are good places, but in 3,000 years, no one would have any clue what was being talked about, right? That's what this is like. We have no idea where these places were. We have no idea where these places but, were. But they're supposed to, if we understand them enough, they're supposed to make us say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's where he would go. Probably 20 or 30 miles worth. It's like when you're growing up as a kid and you go like, hey, meet me at the oak tree or meet me at the fort or, or meet me at the creek. Or, and that, that's the whole idea. Like that's the, that's, that's the picture being described here. Once again... Think of how real this feels. This is just the way we would tell this story too. Oh, I, I was at the country. I went over and looked, at, looked here and here. This, this is the Old Testament version of, you know, if, you're, if you were looking for lost donkeys, you would say, you know, once when my donkeys went missing, me and my cousin, we, right? That's how you would tell it in East Texas, right there. So <laughs> if anyone from my neighborhood was there, I would know where to tell them where to go. And it feels very real. He makes this big circuit with no luck, comes back toward his own region, no luck. This is our introduction to Saul. This is Saul's first attempt at anything that we see, and he doesn't find them. Verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. These are Saul's first words in the Bible are, I quit. This is where we start with Saul. Now, I want to comment for a second and just say, some commentators, I think, take this too far, and they, what they do is they say, these are evidences of Saul's failing character. I think it's less about that, because let's, let's be honest, there are times to quit, okay? I know this is East Texas. And I know that what you're supposed to do when your son comes and says, hey, dad, I'm thinking about quitting football, is you're like, you'll qu you quit or you'll quit everything for the rest of your life. So let's be honest, that's not actually how reality works, right? So let's, let's, just because your dad and his dad and his dad and his dad had that curse on you doesn't mean you've got to pass it on to your children. It's okay to have a conversation. Well, maybe it's right. I remember when I quit band and the band director had the conversation with me about I will, I will now be a serial uh, quitter for the rest of my life and that's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to quit everything if you quit this. And I said, well, if it was more fun, I might stay. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. that was a... um, I will say when I went to my soccer coach and said, hey, I think I'm going to quit soccer. He was like, I think that's probably best for everybody. Like that's a, you know, I, go find something you're good at, kid. That would be, uh, that'd be great. Um, just be easier on all of us. We may not have to figure out how to put you in the role. Um, <clears throat> so it, it is okay. There are, there are times, in fact, as a whole nation, as Texans, as Southerners, and as Baptists, and as Christians, probably it's good for you to hear, it's okay sometimes to quit things. That's okay. However, I think what we see here is the author pointing out things to us. And I think that's the insight maybe we begin to notice. 
So here we have this first thing that we get, the first introduction to Saul, the first words out of his mouth are, I'm quitting. Has he found the donkeys? No. And but he's going home anyway. I think that is the author telling us something about him. Now, we're also supposed to catch another hint that the vast majority of us miss because we're trying to learn to be a good Jewish audience, but we're not there yet. So we need to do a little more sleuthing. 1 Samuel 1.1, remember this? We just read this a second ago. You heard that place, there came to the land of Zuf, and you thought, that sounds familiar. It does because we just read it. 1 Samuel 1.1, there was a certain man, back to chapter 1 verse 1, of Ramathim Zoim, Zophim, in, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. We are now in the region of Zuf, the area named after him. It sounds like something out of a, uh, a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? So here we are in the land of Zuf, and we're supposed to go, oh, that's where Samuel lives. Right? We're supposed to see that coming. Hey, they've stopped in the land of Zuf. Aha! I'll bet Saul, important, wealthy Saul, who lives nearby, will know about the greatest prophet who's ever lived. Will he'll know about the priest of Israel, the, the man who everything he says comes true, who everyone recognizes as a prophet and priest in Israel and has been doing it for a while. Saul will go, oh, you know what we could do? We could talk to Samuel. And you're starting to see how the pieces are going to come together, and that's not what happens. Verse 6, but the servant said, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to the servant, <coughs> but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us his way. Now then the, the, the author, the person who's writing this down, uh, who writes down this account later, who, tells the, who writes all this down, we don't know exactly when, wants us to clarify, because he's about to use a word that we may not know. So verse 9, Formerly in Israel when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was called seer back then. Now, again, I don't want to make too much of this, and some commentaries too, that, that I don't think it's the failure so much as the attention being drawn to the failures. Is this meant to be a big character swipe at Saul? I don't know. Is the author, though, revealing to us in small bites some of the character roots that we're going to see lived out in Saul's life? That, I think, is what we're experiencing. Here we have Saul ready to quit without success. He also does not know who Samuel is. He's clueless as to the most important religious leader in the land. On top of that, <clears throat> he is unprepared. The wealthy man has to accept his servant's quarter of a shekel. This is a, Saul has literally, at this point, Saul is king over one person, the servant. And the servant has to lead him. Saul has to be led by this unnamed servant through this entire experience. He's clueless and has no idea what's going on, and it only gets worse. I also love that the servant has such faith, not only in God to guide them, but in Samuel. Samuel's kind of the pope. 
And he's going to come to Samuel to ask him to help him find some lost donkeys for a quarter of a shekel, which is essentially no money. I love that his faith in Samuel is Samuel will care about us enough that even though we have essentially nothing to give him, he will still help us. I think that's just fascinating. It's a, he, the servant has the faith for Samuel to accept a very small gift to, hand, to help them with a minor problem. Verse 10, <clears throat> and Saul says to the servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up the hill to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you, hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. Now we've talked about this region before, whether you remember it or not, it's called Rama of the Watchers. And that's its name, this region, likely a place with tall, a tall hill or tall hills, perfect for watchtowers. And so they probably had that and they had a high place where they sacrificed to God. Remember, there's no tabernacle. And so this is probably, if you want to look it up, probably a kind of peace offering. Um, you can find peace offerings described in Deuteronomy 12. Um, but we don't have time for, to, to unpack that day, but it, it, it probably that fits best. Now I'm going to jump into verse 13. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them in his, on his way up to the high place. Now, according to some, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but according to some, the language probably seems to indicate that Samuel almost ran into Saul. Um, and his servant. Um, in fact, in fact, it may be that one one commentator referenced that, it, that the pictures he thinks is trying to be created here is that Samuel goes into his house, he comes home, gets in, goes into his house to get some stuff probably. Meanwhile, Saul and the servant come up behind him, and they come up to the door, and just as they come to the door, they're coming towards the door, Samuel opens up and hits Saul with the door. Like it's like that, like bam, they just run into each other right here. And this is made more funny because here's, here's what's great. You got to love the storytelling here. We're at the climax of the story, but the author's going to make you wait for it. So now, oh, they met Samuel and Saul. They're right there. Verse 15. Now, the day before, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow at about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince there's a record scratch for you, over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. There's another one. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He, he it is who shall restrain, third one, my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? So this is almost like a little comedy, I think, between Samuel and God. So the day before, God said, hey, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to meet, I'm going to introduce you to a guy who's a Benjaminite, and it's him that I'm going to make a prince. I'll reference that in a second. But you've got to imagine, God could have said, by the way, he's shockingly tall and shockingly handsome. But I would have given it away, right? I think God wants this moment to be that when Samuel comes out his door and bangs into Saul, he goes, oh my gosh, like, who is this monster standing in front of me? This big, huge guy, and wow, is he good looking. Like, well, that's amazing. You can see why this is going to be, this is going to be confusing later when Samuel's trying to pick the next king, and he keeps going to the older, attractive ones, the older, bigger, attractive ones, and he, it's like, nope, not that one, nope, not that one. You see why that's confusing later for Samuel when we run into that moment. 
Before we move on, we need to take a look at something else that may have caught your attention, especially since I drew your attention to it. God who has warned them that he will not be concerned about them crying out to him because of their king. He just told them that. When the day comes when your king becomes a tyrant and you, you are destroyed, like you're, you're worn out under him and you're going to cry out to me and I'm going to say, man, bummer. Maybe you should have followed me then. That God is going to create this teachable moment for them to learn from their king. He does hear from them clearly, though, when they cry out about the Philistines. It isn't that God has stopped listening to his people, even when he's going to discipline them in a specific way. His ears open to them and he's listening. He has chosen a rescuer named Saul. This is interesting. He has chosen Saul to be the rescuer, the one appointed as prince, not king, prince. I think what we're being, having revealed to us here is that Saul was God's choice as chieftain, leader, captain, as some translations say, prince. It may be that God had always intended to bring Saul up. I'm not talking about the sovereignty of God who knows all things, but the part that, that God's picture, his perfect would have been, hey, this is going to be the next Jephthah, the next Gideon. But no, we want a king I think he is God's choice for prince, but the people want a king. I think that's what's being described here. I could be wrong about that. This is, there is a noun form of king in the Hebrew, and this is not it. There is a verb form of king in the Hebrew, which was usually translated rule. In verse 17, the word restrain is not it. It's a lesser word, a harsher word. Maybe just that's the point. This isn't a king word. But once again, notice this. Saul doesn't recognize Samuel. That is again brought to our attention. They run into each other, and Samuel is asked of Saul. Hey, do you know where the seer lives? This is probably meant to be embarrassing. Samuel says to Saul, I mean, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found... And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? So Samuel does the little what's going to bake your noodle thing for Saul as a way of showing his ID. By the way, the, the, the donkeys you're looking for, I'm the seer and the donkeys you're looking for have already been found. <gasps> How do you know about the donkeys? That's what's supposed to like, that's what happens. What? That's amazing. And just like you thought, your dad's more worried about you now than the donkey. So <clears throat> I'm going to keep you here overnight. I'll send you home tomorrow. Okay? Saul asked, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? <clears throat> this is wild. That, that's weird in the English, the, the question there. Um, uh, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? That's just a, a Hebrew way of saying you're, aren't you the one that everyone's looking for? Now, what's wild is, I'm not sure Saul knows about the hunt for the king. I think Saul is, is just clueless enough that he actually doesn't even understand what's going on here. But what he knows is he's being honored greatly. The prophet, the seer, is saying, I've given you a special place. And how wild must it be, by the way, that what we're about to see in Samuel's language next week is that Samuel's going to tell him, um, I've got an appointed seat for you, and I've got food I've set aside for you, and an appointed time for us to eat together. And you had just Saul going like, how, 
I was just looking for my dad's donkeys. How do you have an appointment with me? You have appointments with me? Like, there's a time I'm going to be somewhere tomorrow? Like, yeah, that's how this is going to work. So Samuel does that, plays that out with him. <clears throat> this is significant, because, and it makes sense. Benjamin, if you remember from when we studied Judges years ago, Benjamin was wiped out. The tribe of Benjamin is wiped out, down to 600 men. The entire tribe slaughtered down to 600 men by, other, by the other tribes because of the wickedness of Benjamin. They deserved it. They were horrible and wicked in what the, and some of the horrible things that they did in the book of Judges. And so the people of Israel decided to wipe them out, and at the last minute stay their hand, and 600 of them survived the experience. Saul is one of the descendants of those very few men. Apparently Saul is also claiming to be from the least important clan from this tiny tribe of Benjamin. How could he be who all of Israel is looking for? It just makes no sense. Did he understand the king thing yet? It's hard to tell, but I really wonder. Um, I think we're going to get to see that unpacked in the next part of this chapter. But here's what's interesting. When I read through this the first time, my first question was, how on earth does any of this apply to me? And so after writing up my notes and doing the research, and I'm still going, I am struggling. I don't see how this, any of this applies to me. How does this apply to you? And so I went online to look at, as I often do, <clears throat> and to watch some other preachers and teachers teach through this stuff. And it cracked me up that Alistair Begg's first sentence when he gave his sermon was, he read, the, he read the whole story, and then he says, you're probably wondering, how does this apply to me? And I was like, yes, thank you, exactly. Now help me out here. So Alistair and I talked, and as it turns out, there's some really good stuff woven into this that as he started unpacking it, came to life for me as well. Here's one. God is intimately aware of our every little moment. And he is able and willing to engage with even the smallest and seemingly random events of our lives. Now, I want to caution you. Sometimes we turn this into a weird OCD thing that we go, oh, I saw six birds on a limb today. And that must mean God is telling me that the number six, like, don't, don't do that. That's not what I mean. Now, if a prophet comes to you the day before and says, tomorrow when you see six birds on a branch, you need to go, okay, that pay attention to, right? That's, that's different, and that's what we're seeing. But it's fascinating that God will use seemingly insignificant moments to communicate. That's, that's impressive to me, and it, it stands out to me that God's intimate involvement, though He is sovereign of the universe, His intimate involvement in what seem like the most insignificant, even silly little moments... But more important than that to me was this. It is the role of the seemingly insignificant people. Look at the dots necessary to get Saul to Samuel. Look at the, the dots of people. Imagine this story without the little servant. The unnamed insignificant servant who we never hear from again. Saul, hey, Saul, go look for my donkeys. Saul goes to look, spends half a day looking, gives up, quits, goes home. No, the servant is key in this story. We, we get the story doesn't exist without this unnamed servant getting Saul all the way to Samuel. That's significant even from an insignificant person. How about a group of young women drawing water? Probably a little starstruck by the handsomest man in Israel showing up and asking them a question, Right? And they, and they get, oh yeah, <coughs> here's what you got to go do. By the way, women drawing water in Scripture 
they have a significant role. It's, they're a thing. It's a thing in the Bible. Isaac is greatly directed by women drawing water. Moses, by women drawing water. And of course, Jesus um, gets to have a, one of the most important uh, conversations we ever get to experience through a conversation with a woman drawing water. But think of all the insignificant people that we run into in the Bible. A bunch of fishermen. Like Andrew, who he's not even all that significant as a disciple, but he introduced Peter to Jesus, and that's how we get Peter. Um, James and John. <clears throat> These are just Galilean fishermen. They're not important people. We get people who are actually trafficked. We have more than one trafficked person, people who have faced abuse and trauma. Esther, Daniel, Joseph, just to name a few. And yet, the powerful thing that God uses them for. It's, re it's really powerful. There's no one, there's no one who's <clears throat> faced any type of trauma in life that removes them from God's kingdom and the significance in His kingdom, no matter how insignificant they actually are. They seem to be. We have unwed mothers, cutthroats, prostitutes, totally random strangers. The people who just show up and they seem so insignificant and then they carry so much weight in his kingdom. And of course, shepherd boys and servants and shield bearers, as we've seen. And we'll continue to see. This gives me hope. This gives me hope that all of us, as insignificant as we are, are not insignificant in the story that God is telling. This to me is very powerful. It's a powerful message. If you will, all of us, insignificant people, stand. And isn't this key, by the way, isn't it fascinating that we are insignificant? In fact, the biggest risk to being used by God in his kingdom in a powerful way to, to being on his team and doing the cool things that he has for us is that we think we're just too darn significant. I'm too important to have to deal with this, and I'm too important to have to deal with that, and, and I'm too special that I shouldn't have to have these kind of, all those, the, the proud are who are humbled. But those of us who recognize our own insignificance, God exalts. It's a really cool picture. And so all of us, each of us, as we think about the insignificant, our insignificant role, just, just to this, we're just one person at this one church in this one town, in this one state. I mean, what, what significant role can I have in the kingdom? Unnamed, 3,000 years later, no one will know what I did. And yet, look at the, ins the role of these insignificant people in this account. It's vital. God gives us, if, if, here's the thing, there is a God, and, and this God loves you, and this God has chosen you, and he's shown you this love through coming and experiencing life here as a man and dying in our place to face down the just wrath of our own pride and our own sin. You may not know that, like that's, that's, each of us are that significant. Each of us are treasure to him. And if, if today is the first day for you to hear that, that he knows each of us and treasures each of us, or you've heard it in a new way and you would like for, to pray with us about that, I, I would love for you to come let us know or let someone in the room know. Maybe you're someone who said, I, I'm too this to serve. I'm too broken. I'm too traumatized. I'm too much of a sinner. I'm too to serve. Well, the Bible's going to tell you not so. The Bible's going to tell you that you are still treasured to Him as well. And so to understand and embrace that our significance comes through His assignment of our treasure value as significant. No matter our sin, and no matter our brokenness. 
no matter how insignificant we may seem to be. And this story is going to continue to show that. It's only going to get more intense as we push through this. If you've been through our welcome home process and uh, you've, you've talked to Lance, you've watched videos, you've done all that kind of stuff, and you're ready to come join our dysfunctional family in, in a minute when we start singing would be a good time to do that. I pray that you will listen to the Spirit. Sing, pray, listen, and respond however the Spirit leads you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you will speak to our heart through the power of your Spirit. You love us, and even if others haven't chosen us, you have. Even in our brokenness, even in our sin, you choose us, and you love us. And I pray we'll be able to embrace that and live in the joy of that, even though it's really tough sometimes. It's tough to feel insignificant. Thank you that you have called us your very own and that you treasure and prize us. And I pray, Lord, that today will be a day of the recognition of that and the joy of that. And we pray these things in your son's magnificent name. Amen.